Thank you, choir. Thank you so much. Our God is awesome. You know, but I have to share, my, my brain works weirder than many. And when I hear that line, our God can move mountains, sometimes I play that down because men with tractors can move a mountain, but our God can make a mountain. He can create a mountain out of nothing. And he can remove it just as easily. We have an awesome God. So good morning to you. Hope you've got your seatbelts on. We're going to go for a little ride today for the book of 1 Corinthians. So we're continuing our series um, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in this passage, Paul uh, tells us what God says the purpose and the use of our bodies is to be and what we're supposed to do with these things called Christian liberties. Uh, for those that have been with us for the past uh, few months, they know that uh, you should probably all known by now that Corinth was a city given over to sexual immorality and even the worship of sex. Maybe each night from the temple of Aphrodite, over a thousand priestesses, prostitutes would enter the city so that people could worship through sex. See, sexuality without boundaries was accepted by them and celebrated in that culture, and it really kind of reminds me of California today. Paul was teaching them that the culture had this view of sex wrong and immorality wrong, but there were some in the church who still took issue with him, and they even used his own words against him to say that, no, I think it's cool. I think we can do whatever we want because Paul had taught them that Christ had set them free. They were free from the law. And they said, well, if I'm free from the law, I guess I'm free to do everything I want. Well, that's not what Paul meant. And in fact, they turned what he said into a mantra and it's quoted for us here in verse 12. Now, we use mantras in our culture today. We still have many of them. Uh, anybody heard just do it or how about you only live once so go for the gusto or how about you deserve the best you're worth it man you know you are the most important person on this planet look out for number one nobody else will or how about the ever popular he who dies with the most toys wins the world uses and grabs one of these and runs with it. But today, even in the church world, we've been warned through Scripture to guard the, the gospel because people in the church can even twist truths that are true. What Paul said about freedom was true, but they twisted it. And in fact, the elders this, this week uh, were sharing and being saddened by a video of a prominent American pastor who was sharing his views on the LGBTQ issue. And I was so sad as I listened to this as he spoke about the Christian church's need to soften its stance. And the church must actually embrace practicing homosexuals and lesbians um, as members of Christ's church in good standing. This is an anathema. It shouldn't be true. But the exact same thing was happening to Paul in Corinth. They were taking a truth and twisting it. And so we're going to begin right now to see what they were saying. Open your Bibles with me in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians and see what God has to say because we're really not interested in what I have to say, what the culture has to say. We're interested in what God has to say. So let's read what God has to say about these issues. Starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. 
Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you make this text come alive to us? Paul is pretty graphic in his illustrations of how devastating immorality and sexual sin is, not only to the believer, but to Christ. May it penetrate our hearts, and may we hear not what the culture says, but what you have to say about what our bodies are for and how we should use them and why that's true. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, I've entitled my message this morning, The Body Isn't Meant for That. And in our passage, we're going to see what the body was made for and what it was not made for. We'll also see that God has remained very, very involved and cares deeply about what happens to whoever he has purchased and redeemed. You see that your body is very important to God. He cares about what you put in your body. He cares about what your eyes see. He cares about what you do with your mind. He cares what you do about your sexual parts. He's not a thing about your body that he's not caring about. Why? I think there's a couple reasons. One, because he loves you. And two, God cares greatly for what he's invested greatly in. You know, you and I are not much different. If you buy a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar, million-dollar, whatever-you-can-afford house, somehow you don't like people putting holes in the walls. You care whether your roof is tight and then doesn't leak. If you buy a new car, if you ever have, somehow you found the courage to park far away from the store's doors just to make sure that no one puts a cart or a door into your side of your car and ding it. And the older your car gets, the closer you park to the doors. Have you noticed? As the value decreases, so does my interest in protecting it. God says, I paid a pretty high price for this, and my interest in my investment is as high as it can ever be. And what's more revealing is when his investment is like some of ours, when that investment involves not only money, but also our love, our affection, our care, our devotion, like to our families and to our children, you cannot even put a price tag on how caring and how concerned you are with what happens to them. Any normal parent is concerned what happens to their children if they're invested in them. And your children probably represent the greatest investment you'll make in anything in your life. Just add up all the bills, you'll see. Look at those straight teeth. Whatever it is you've invested in, you take care of. And God is the same. And he's going to tell us in our passage today some reasons why. But I want to say that God didn't just save your soul. He doesn't want us to say, well, I gave my heart to Jesus, but I can do whatever I want with my body. When he bought you, he bought you body, soul, and spirit. He bought all three parts. You are a composite whole. And he bought your body. And he has access to your body because he's the owner of your body. Not just your mind, not just your heart, but your body. And so what happens here is what we're looking at is we have a group of Corinthians that said, well, God has my heart, but not my body. 
And he's going to take this on and say, well, this is totally not right. You can't do this. And so he also talks about Christian liberty. And let me just set the stage for that. What is Christian liberty? Do you know that God has not told us the answer clearly, definitively, for every issue you will face in life in Scripture? You, know, you realize that, right? That we live life many times in what we call the gray because wherever God has definitively spoken, that is not an option for us. If he says to do it, we must do it. If he says not to do it, we must not do it. That's not up for debate. In fact, I'm not gonna spend much time up here talking about why we should defend that. That's the word of God. We do what the word of God says. That's it. But what about all the things the word of God hasn't addressed? What about, should I take vitamins? Um, how about... Can I have bacon for breakfast? Or what is the divine appointed bedtime for my teenager? Is there one of those? Um, how about, shall I can send my kids to public school, private school, homeschool? Um, can I smoke a cigar and still be a Christian? Can I go to the movies? All these decisions have been faced by many church groups, and many church groups have had opinions about these things. But we must know that where only those things where God has definitively said yes and no are the only things that are absolute. What may be right for your neighbor may not be right for you, and what might be right for you may not be right for your neighbor if God hasn't spoken to it. That's why we should never get in arguments, well, you send your kids to public school? Oh my. You let your kids stay up until 11? How ungodly. See, these things are all wrong. And Paul's saying these are Christian liberties, but he does say in this passage there are some guardrails, there are some constraints on Christian liberty that God gives us. He says, look, you're not just running amok out here doing whatever you want. If I didn't say it, you can do whatever you want. That's still not true. There are constraints on our liberties. And see, Paul was a big advocate of freedom. Remember in Galatians, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to your yoke of slavery. He was concerned that Christ set each one of us free and we were not bound by the law anymore. We're not bound by other people's opinions. We're bound by what God has said and we are free, we're not. And what he wanted us to do is understand how does a Christian live life inside the boundaries that God wants us to live when there are no rules. Because Paul was definitely not going to give us more rules. That was not what he was about. So, how did the Galatians, or how did the Corinthians get off track? Well, they forgot one key point. According to Galatians 5.13, you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That's exactly what they did. See, we don't have to argue anymore whether doing the Bible is right. Let's put that aside. Let's move on and talk about liberties because as we live life in the gray, God gives us two guardrails for liberty. The first one's in the first part of verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Paul confirms their adage, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So the two things that God tells us here, that we have a thousand freedoms, but those freedoms must be regulated, must be constrained by these two facts, these two principles. First, is the freedom that I want to practice now, is it profitable for me and for those around me? And second, and we're gonna go deeper into these, second, is the thing I'm choosing to do, will it enslave me? Will it capture me? Will it own me? You know, there's a lot of things in life that own us as soon as we practice them. And we don't have to talk about drugs here, but do drugs do you any favor if you take them? No, they will enslave you. So let's go on and say, what should we talk about? Paul doesn't want us to argue anymore that doing the will of God and doing the word of God is important. Because sexual sin was rampant in this church. They were having difficulties. They were practicing sin 
because it's part of their liberty. And Paul is saying, remember, this is not a liberty for you because Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? No way, by no means, may it never be. So for us to say, well, God will forgive me no matter what I do. Well, that's a truth. Should you exploit that and cheapen God's grace? Absolutely not. So now we see that the sexual sins that these people were committing were sins that are like no others. And God's gonna describe those in this passage. Sexual sin really has more built-in problems, more pitfalls, more destructiveness, than does any other sin. It's shattered more marriages, broken more homes, caused more heartache, more disease, more problems, and has than any alcohol and drug combined. Sexual sin is a devastator. It eventually leads to lying, stealing, cheating, and even some people have killed in the name of protecting themselves or getting what they want. Sexual sin is deadly deadly and he wants us to understand that these guardrails you first look at it the first guardrail is is it profitable well no sin is ever profitable so you can just that's why we don't have to talk much about this if God says it it's to not do it as sin so that's not profitable move it off the table what else do we got to talk about well is it profitable what does that really mean we don't think of it like we sometimes think of profitable. We think of making money. I'm not talking about making money. I'm talking, is it beneficial? Is it helpful to you? Does it allow you to grow in your relationship with Christ? If this freedom allows you to continue growing in your relationship to Christ, then according to the first part of the guardrail, it's okay for you. What's the second part of the guardrail? The second part of that first guardrail is beneficial, means is it beneficial to others? See, we're to love one another. Do you realize that, believer? We're to love one another. And if your exercise of your freedom causes an injury, a hurt, a stumble, a drawing away from Christ of another believer, then he's saying here, it's not for you. You can't practice that freedom because we're not free to practice something that is not profitable. And it certainly wouldn't be profitable for another believer if it hurts them, right? Can you practice something that you know will hurt your brother? No. So here are the first part. The first guardrail, is it profitable? Um, I think the second part of this now is what's the second guardrail? Well, the second guardrail is this. Even though all things are lawful for me, I must not make choices that allow anything to master me. Now, we think of that normally when we think of maybe drugs or alcohol because that's the typical addiction that people might have. But I don't think it's narrow like that. I don't think God intended it to be narrow like that. In fact, we have to ask ourselves, is there anything right now where you say, I actually don't have a lot of choice, I have to do that? You're, in, you're probably in danger of one of the things God's talking about here. Is it mastering your body? Is there anything that you've done you thought you were free to do, but now that you've started doing it, you realize you can't let go of it? This is the warning. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. If you're doing anything that has mastery over you, your body becomes unavailable to Christ, it's wrong. It's wrong. Well, what could that look like? Well, one of the things that we know is wrong is sin, right? And what does sin do? Sin enslaves, according to Romans 6.16. He says, when you give yourself over to obey sin, you are a slave to sin. Sin is your master. Did you know that sin is not an inert thing that you either consider doing or not consider doing? According to what God said to Cain in verse four, I think verse seven of chapter four of Genesis, he says, Cain, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door. 
and it wants to take you over, but you must master it. Does that sound like just an inert thing, a, a, like a, a, whether I take that donut or not? No, this is the active donut. This is the donut that pursues you, the donut that sees you when you're hungry in the middle of the night. This is, this is something that will pursue you. Sin is a pursuer. And you can't play with this. You have to master it. Because, I don't know if you've heard it said before, but it bears repeating. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Once you start fiddling with sin, you will pay a price that you never anticipated. God's warning us, stay away because we cannot be anything that would enslave such as sin is off the table. But what about something else like our habits, our daily activities, some things we choose to do? Well, if anything has mastered us, we're no longer free. And I don't want to pick on people, but some people have what you might call a caffeine addiction. I must tread lightly. Or their energy drinks. And they say to you, hey, what's your problem? Hey, it's 9.30 and I haven't had my four cups of coffee. You probably, if you're drinking coffee because you love coffee, wonderful for you. But if coffee owns you and you owe your life to a plant, you might want to reconsider your use of coffee. That's all God is saying here. Don't let anything tell your body what to do. Anything. Well, what about the time you spend watching TV or TikTok, social media, sports, TV, hobbits, habits, uh, alcohol, chocolate, whatever it is. If it owns you, it's not for you. If you can do it and it doesn't own you, wonderful for you. It's a freedom. These are the two guardrails. Don't let anything be your master other than Jesus Christ. You do not want to be in a position where Jesus comes to you and says, hey, I need you to go take care of this work for me, and you tell him back, sorry, I'm in the middle of satisfying my freedom's addiction, and when I'm done with that, then I can maybe serve you. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? I, I, my freedom has enslaved me, but uh, as soon as I'm done with that, God says, no, no. Don't even get involved in it. Wow, so the three things we should consider on behavior is simply, is it in God's word? Do it. Two, is it profitable? Does it draw you closer to Jesus? Does it draw others closer to Jesus? Does it harm anyone? If it doesn't fail any of those tests, you can do it. And it says, but careful, Something that might be a freedom for your neighbor may not be a freedom for you because you can't handle what they can handle. Don't do anything that enslaves you and masters your body. Don't do anything. So what's the purpose of the body? That's in the next verse, in 13 and 14, we see he's gonna give an illustration and provide us with some information about what we do with our bodies important. It says food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both. What's that about? Why is he talking about food and stomach? Well, this is another common saying, and he, the people there in Corinth were saying, hey, sex is just like food and stomach, man. The body was, had a stomach so you can put food in it, and the stomach's only there so food can go in it. I don't know another purpose for the stomach. What do you put in your stomach besides food? I don't know. Hopefully not much. It gets bigger, but that's about it. But what's the other thing? It says, but God will destroy them. What's that? Why is that important? He's telling you that that's a temporary uh, relationship. This is not going to happen long term. In the new, when we get to heaven, we're not taking our stomach with us. Did you know that? We'll have taste buds, but no stomach. It's really, it's, no one will get fat there. That's interesting. We'll, we won't eat there to sustain life like we do here. And he's saying this, this relationship between the body and food, you're comparing it to the body and sex. That's not a fair comparison. Why? Because the stomach's going to be destroyed, but your body is not. Your body's going to go with you to heaven. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. 
But one of the first things we do when we get to heaven, by the way, is we have a banquet served by the Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke chapter 12 and according to Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And nobody gets fat. Nobody has to count calories. Nobody has to worry because God's going to give us a heavenly appetite and and an ability to enjoy food just for the enjoyment of food. I can't wait. Anyway, uh, what else? But why is he talking about it? Well, it says the very next thing. What does he say in that verse? He says, well, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. Why would he tell them this? He said, look, your God, when he generated and developed and designed a body, it was never intended for immorality. What was it intended for, Paul? It was intended for God. God made you a body so that you could work and serve and glorify God with your body. It's an amazing thing. What now? So when you use your body for anything else, especially immorality, that's contrary to the purpose it was made. And he's just telling you, look, you cannot use your body to accomplish the work of the flesh. Because at the end of your life, you know this, at the end of your life, the only thing that will matter as they look at you and you're gone is what did that body accomplish for Jesus Christ? It won't matter how rich you were. It won't matter how many toys you had. It won't matter how smart you were and how many degrees you have, how many languages you speak. It's going to be, what did my body what was it made available to do? Was it made available to do the God's work and kingdom work? Then it matters, and God will record that and reward that. That's the hay, wood, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. But we have to look at what we're doing with our bodies because they will persist. And I want to go on further because it comes up next. The importance of avoiding sexual immorality is Paul's next point. And he dives in beginning in verses 14 to 17 and 18. Basically, and he uses graphic terms. So you can't get mad at me. I'm just using his terms. A lot of Christians start blushing when you start talking about sex. I want you to know biblical Christianity is not embarrassed, not ashamed, and not afraid to talk about sex. God designed it. God says it was wonderful in the right place and we need to not be afraid to talk to our culture about it because our culture is in a significant mess on this issue of sex. And if the church is quiet, then who tells them the truth? No one. No one. And so we cannot be embarrassed about this stuff. So bear with me. This this is what Paul said and it's graphic and it should shock you in places. It did me. So let's go on. I have to first describe to you when he says do not practice sexual immorality, we always have to set the stage. What does that mean? I said it before in a prior message and others have used it. The point is, it's not what the culture says it is. If that were true, there would be nothing off the table. Right? What would be sexually immoral if we lose the culture's definition? Nothing. They've legalized everything in their own minds. God hasn't. So we're using God's definition. And God's definition is simply this. Anything, any sexual expression outside of the faithful, monogamous, heterosexual marriage relationship is outside the God's box of morality. So it's either purity or marriage. That's where sex is the sex's role. It's either purity outside of marriage, if you're not married, if you're married, it stays inside the marriage, period. That's God's definition. So anything outside of that box, fornication, adultery, pornography, prostitution, it's all outside the box. And God says he will provide no satisfaction there. No matter what you think you're trying to get by going out there and having fun sexually in the world according to what God says is not good for you will provide no satisfaction ultimately. It will be empty. It'll be a dead end street. 
God provides no blessing. He blesses the marriage bed. He does not bless that. So many Corinthian believers were falling into this, and, they, and Paul was telling them, look, you cannot be immoral and use your body for immorality and please God. It's a con- it just contradict one another. So the first reason Paul gives them is in verse 14, why they should not practice immorality. And he says, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. I have to say, why did Paul immediately jump to resurrection to describe why we should stay pure? It was difficult, but I I think I found God's connection. He says this, believe it or not, one day God is gonna drag our sorry bodies up to heaven and glorify them. Our bodies will make the journey and our bodies have an eternal future. And he's telling us, look, it's not just your spirit that goes to heaven. Your body will go to heaven as well. It won't have a stomach, but your body will go. Now, it might lose a few pounds in the process, or for some of you, you might gain a few pounds, but certainly we'll all look a whole lot better. And I'm looking forward to that. And we'll all recognize one another. Why? Because we take who we essentially are there. And this body makes the journey. And we should never do anything in our bodies that would bring shame as we arrive there in our body. Don't do anything. Because we should watch how you use this body because it's an eternal body. It's going to make the journey and it's going to remind you of the things you did here. Don't do anything here that will bring shame to you there because I'm taking your body with you. The body you used to have all this illicit sex or whatever you did with it. That body is gonna, if you're a believer now, it's gonna make the journey and you don't wanna do anything in that body that will bring shame to Christ or to yourself. That's why resurrection's in here. Remember, we have an eternal body with an eternal future. And that body, believe it or not, should be doing the will of God now, but definitely it will be doing the will of God when we arrive in heaven. You do know that we still have jobs to do when we arrive in heaven. We'll still be worshiping and praising the Lamb in heaven. We will be engaged in doing the glorifying and the work of the God of heaven that rescued us. That's what we'll be doing. So he's making the argument, hey, food and the stomach are temporary, but bodies are eternal. Then in 15, he reveals his second reason, which is his first of three, do you not know? And those do you not know statements, I like to look at them this way. It's kind of like saying, you haven't forgotten, have you? I already told you this. So you haven't forgotten, and he's looking for the nod. It's like if a wife asks you, you haven't forgotten my birthday, have you? And the correct answer is, absolutely not. Right? No, no way, I would have never forgotten that. Okay, this is the answer Paul's looking for from the Corinthians when he says, do you not know? You should know this already, right? And so he says, your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Can you imagine this? This is total outrage. The body that God gave me to glorify him and work for him, I'm going to engage it with prostitutes. That's so shocking. And he says, do you not know that you are bound to Christ? Your body is a member of Christ. You know, we're not just belonging to Christ. We are one with Christ. Have we read the verse, Romans 8, 1? We are in Christ. And in first, and Colossians 1, 27, Christ in us, the hope of glory, right? We are so intertwined, you can't go anywhere without Jesus coming along. You are a member of his body. What is he telling us? He's saying wherever you go, even if it's into sin, you're dragging Jesus with you. Jesus is right next to you. You've tapped him on the shoulder and says, Jesus, I'm gonna sin now, come along. And you take him. In fact, he gets so graphic, he says, when you go to bed with a prostitute, you gotta understand you, when you do this, believer, you put Jesus in bed right next to you. Can you imagine? How appalling is that? It makes me sick. If we think of it correctly, we would never do this. Paul's saying, think of it correctly. 
You are bound inextricably if you're a saved believer to Jesus Christ. You are a member of his body. You cannot just do what you want because wherever you go, you take Jesus with you even if you don't want him tagging along. Jesus does not just wait in the car as you go sin. Jesus comes with you and you can't even stop him. And the hard thing about this to me is that he never leaves us. He never writes us off. That's why Paul is saying this sin is so horrendous. If you really understood it, you would never do it. Well, he actually says this too. If we're members of Christ and we're members of a prostitute, um, there is just no secret sin. Did you know you have no secret sin? I know you might think to yourself, no one knows what I'm doing. Jesus does. And we're going to learn later that the Holy Spirit does and the Father does. So there are no secret sins. But Paul then goes to verse 16 and 17 and says his third reason to keep our bodies from sexual immorality. And it's really one of the mysteries in Scripture. He says this, Do you not know the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, The two shall become one flesh. God is saying there is a mystery in the sexual union of two people that you become one thing. Now, we don't understand that. I couldn't explain it to you if I had to. But God says it's true, so I must tell you. It's the truth. He says you are united in a way that is persistent. After that sexual sin is over, you think, I'm all done, I got cleaned up, it's all over. No, you have been fundamentally changed, and so has the other person. You have been in a union that has been established and is persistent. That's why you can't walk away from this sin and say it's over. It will never be over in this life. You are joined to that person in a way that you can't understand. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said this, each time a man and a woman enter into a sexual relationship, a spiritual bond is established with which must be either eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. You think you can walk away from having sex with who you want to and just leave it behind? God says not so. You formed a one body, one flesh union with that person that will never be gone. That's why you leave almost a piece of yourself with everyone you ever might have sex with. It's devastating. And the thing that Paul's bringing up here is you're bringing Jesus into that union. You're making Jesus one flesh with a prostitute. How ugly is that? That's terrible. And if we really knew what we were doing, I don't think any of us would truly do that. But that's what God says is happening. This is his third reason. We cannot put Jesus in a sexual union so vulgar and vile. See, but I, have, I want you to say, hear something from me. We gotta go quickly. God has designed sex for those inside the box, those that he blesses with great intimacy, with great pleasure. God wants sex to be wonderful. In fact, it says he blesses the marriage bed. Now, when God blesses something, does it get worse or better? Yeah. When he blessed the loaves and the fish, did they go farther than humanly possible? He sure, they did. So if he blesses your sex life, do you think it'll be better than humanly possible? I think so. That's how he designed it. That's why he wants this relation with you. He wants you to stay inside his area of blessing. So sex can be wonderful. This, see, the church needs to be loud and proud about that. We're not against sex. We're, against, we're for what God is for, which is sex and a marriage of faithfulness and fidelity. That's what we're for. And God says you'll bless it. Right? It'll make it wonderful. So let's just move on. The last thing he says after these three instructions on purity he says and the way you manage this is flee immorality run 
We are not equipped, believer, to go toe-to-toe with sexual sin. God tells us to run, to flee. Now, to you and to the neighbor next to you, fleeing might look different. Fleeing really means run as far and as fast as you can so that you will escape the temptation. And if you only went, well, I moved. Yeah, I I see the porno magazine over there, but I kind of went over here. That's not fleeing. For you, you might have good eyesight. You have to go 100 yards away. For your neighbor who's blind, he can go six feet. But the point is, our job is to flee the trap. Sin is a trap. Sin is deadly. We're to flee this particular temptation. And I think Paul just says, remember, flee this temptation. Because unlike all the other sins, this one is deadly and can hurt yourself. I said, it's against your own body. You gotta know that there's other sins against the body. How about gluttony? How about drunkenness? Don't those affect your own body? True. That wasn't Paul's point. Paul said, this one's sourced out of a place and has the impact like no other. When you sin in this area, you do long-term damage to yourself. And that sometimes you can't even erase it. Well, let's move on to the last thing, is how the Trinity is involved. And I love this part. Um, We see, and we have seen, right, that Jesus has been our motivator in the first three verses, in 14 to 17, or four verses. He lets us know how Christ, we are unified with Christ, right? And he was going to raise our body. So we're going to be with Christ. We're members with Christ. We shouldn't unite it with anything sinful. He says your body is going to last beyond this life. So don't do anything in this life when you take that body with you to heaven that you have memory of all the things you did wrong. Don't do those things. This is an eternal body. Protect it. Cherish it. Let it be used to glorify God. And the third thing we learned about Jesus' involvement is when we join ourselves sexually, there's a unified bond that God says is special and unique, and we can't even describe what it is, but it's real, and it has permanence, and it has impact on our lives, and we can't get rid of it, we can't wash our hands of it, and it won't go away. And he says, when we do that, we put Jesus in that bond. Don't do that. Don't do that. But in verse 19, we see how the Holy Spirit's involved and he uses this third, do you not know? He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Can you imagine? If you were the, uh, a person in the Jewish community who has heard the stories all their life, that God, when a priest goes into the temple and he was not fit for the duty to go into the holies of holies, what would happen to him? He would die right on the spot. What happened to the man who reached out and touched the ark of God because that's where God was dwelling and he touched the ark? What happened to him? He died. And now God's coming and said, by the way, I'm gonna take this same powerful God, I'm gonna put it in you. And we're saying, whoa, wait, wait, wait. wait." He says, no, no, I'm gonna make you a fit temple for me. And the Holy Spirit is going to move in. And I will live in you. And you will have his power, his presence in your life forever. In fact, when you get to heaven, you will have no more of the Holy Spirit than you have right now. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit is a person. Can you get a half of a person? Or can you pray for more of the person? No, the person of the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and he will dwell in you forever. You're not gonna get more of him when you get to heaven, so don't count on being a lot more... uh, receptive to God's word there than you are here. The point is, you have the Holy Spirit if you have Christ. Well, what else does that happen? He says, I'm gonna be a passenger in your body, so be careful what you do with me and keep me comfortable. It says, don't grieve the Spirit. That's in Ephesians 4. Don't quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5. We gotta make sure that this Spirit that's our divine passenger we are hospitable to. We make them feel at home. Our bodies, our minds, our hearts are all focused on pleasing God. When we do that, the Holy Spirit will be fully pleased. No problem. 
Well, the last thing it says, the Father's involved in the use of our body. He says, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Man, I love this. Can you see this? You were bought with a price. And who did the buying? The Father did. He invested what? The blood of his Son on a cross to gain us. Such a valuable find, right? No, we were rebels, we were sinners, we were dirty, we were filthy, but God used Christ on a cross to pour our sins on and so he could rescue us and he bought us, body, soul, and spirit. You know, God could always tell you what to do. He was sovereign God. He could tell pagan kings what to do. He can tell everybody what to do because he has the right, right? He made the universe. This is his place. He makes the rules. He can tell anybody what to do, but he's appealing here, and Paul's appealing. I'm appealing not on the grounds of my sovereignty, but on the grounds that I paid a high price to buy you. It cost me a son to get you. Can you imagine what a motive that is for us, for our life? that we don't have the right anymore to say I can do what I want because we were purchased. I mean, we can't say anymore, you have no right to me. No, God says, I invested in you and it cost me the blood of my very own son who I love. But because I invested that, you now belong to me. I can love you like I love him. In fact, it says he does. Now, we find that if we're not doing the right thing, if we're struggling with temptation in our lives, the problem is not really the temptation. Do you know if you're struggling with a sexual temptation, it's not really a sexual temptation's fault. All of us, believe it or not, have sexual desires and temptations, and it doesn't matter how old you get. They don't go away. I know of 90-year-old men that have them. I don't know. I've not talked to many 90-year-old women to see if they have them too. But I know that 90-year-old men struggle with this just like teenagers do. So it's not the, the temptation. It's a heart problem. It's a theological problem. It's do you or do you not belong to Christ? Do you or do you not love him? Do you or do you not uh, are, you, are you not a member of his body? If you answer these questions, then the master has the right to say what happens with his servant, right? He's our master. He only wants one master in our life, him, and we should never get in a place where anything else is the master. Well, let me close this way. Let me ask you, what are you doing with your body? What have you allowed it to participate in? What are you allowing it to participate in? What holds mastery over you right now? You know, some people's bodies just aren't available to God. They're available to their goals, their pleasures, their families, their hobbies, but they're not really available to God, and God doesn't have much say what happens to their life. Who's ever heard of the property or the thing purchased telling the person that purchased it, you can't use me this way? If you bought a car, how would you feel if your car told you, I'm not driving you to the store? I'm not available for that. I paid for you. What are you doing? I mean, I'm glad cars don't talk even AI cars. I don't want to hear that. Right? But it's impossible to conceive that the person purchased would tell the purchaser how they can be used. So who gets to use your body? Does Jesus Christ get to use your body? God paid for the right to do so. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our eternity. Or maybe who controls your body is just the lust of the flesh or glittering temptations of the culture. But your body wasn't made for that. Your body was made to honor God and to glorify God. Some of you might feel in trouble right now. You might say, well, I think a few things are outside the guardrails. 
Well, for you, you know that there's always repentance and there's cleansing in Jesus Christ. He never has left you. If you're his, he's waiting to hear from you. But if you're not his this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're still a slave to sex and lust and sin, that's a terrible taskmaster. Sin is a terrible taskmaster. But God wants to save you. He wants to set you free. He wants to give you eternal life right now, right now, right now. Doesn't need to wait. You can come right like you are. You don't need to clean up first and get your own human shower. God will clean you up. See, we all need a savior to set us free. Just like the woman at the well. She had five husbands. The one she was living with was not her husband. She could find no satisfaction, Mick Jagger, for in her life. She could no, get no satisfaction. But we all can find the ultimate satisfaction in life by faith at the foot of the cross of Jesus. He is the source of all satisfaction. All satisfaction. So I would say this. We all need a Savior today. And I would just say to you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us what's right and wrong. Thank you for putting guardrails on what we can't ever think about. There are more questions in life than we'll ever come up with answers. But by putting guardrails in place, you're not worried whether I wear a blue shirt or a brown shirt today. My cousin used to tell me all the time, if I'm praying, I said, Lord, I want to wear the right shirt today. Is that blue or is that brown? And God says, of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. It doesn't matter if it doesn't stumble your brother, if it causes you no harm in your growth to Christ, wear what other cover, color shirt you want. And life is a lot like that. Help us, Father, not to get wrapped around the axle of stuff that doesn't matter. Help us to actually focus on that which does matter, which is doing the will of God, honoring God with our bodies, and doing what pleases you that we might bring you glory forever. Father, if there's anyone here that is still struggling with sin, that still wants to let go, may these truths help them let it go, and may you rescue their soul and set them free from their slavery to sin and give them eternal life through Jesus Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.